Turn with me to the Gospel of John. We began our journey through the Gospel of John last week. We discovered that the Word, Jesus, incarnated God, but also interpreted God for us. If we want to know who God is, we look no further than the person known as the Word or Jesus, whom that name belongs to. And we looked at verses 1 through 5, then verse 14 and then 17 through 18 in what is commonly called the prologue to the Gospel of John. Today we're going to complete a consideration of the prologue. We're going to begin with verse 6, reading through 13, and then finally verse 15 today. These verses will serve as the morning message. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible and invite you to follow in whatever version you have handy. John chapter 1, verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." And now verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. A careful reading of the Gospel of John reveals that it has the sense of a trial embedded in it. We see this in the terminology that is used in the Gospel of John. Judgment occurs often, death, life, and in this text, witness. Witness is a big word in the Gospel of John. In its noun form, we find it 14 times in the Gospel of John. When you look at the other three Gospels, it only shows up four times in the other three Gospels. The verb form of witness is found 33 times in the Gospel of John. In the other three Gospels, it only appears twice. So we see the heavy emphasis upon terminology as it would have been experienced in the courtroom. In the arena of jurisprudence, today, many times, a defendant's fate rests upon the testimony of an expert witness. Now, there is a sense in which We who know Jesus have been given the responsibility to represent Jesus Christ just like John the Baptist did in the arena of human opinion as it relates to his person. And the Word of God, especially in the Gospel of John, gives us plenty of material to present because it paints such a clear picture of the person of Jesus Christ so that we, not unlike John the Baptist, can give quite a wonderful representation of witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist is the prototypical expert witness as it relates to Jesus Christ. Think with me a moment about some of the things 
which are characteristic of an expert witness, whether it's in a court of law today or was in biblical times or always will be when people read the book of John. Here's a very important point. A certify, a, excuse me, an expert witness must be one who is certified, who is recognized because of his or her expertise. So here we have John the Baptist. Was he certified? Yes. Look at verse 6. This section is introduced by this statement. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. Fix your eyes for a moment on that phrase, sent from God. The word translated sent is a word from which our English word apostle comes. An apostle is one who is sent with the authority of the one who sends him to speak on his behalf. And when we come to this point, God has sent John the Baptist into the world for a specific purpose. That is, to be the expert witness of the Word or the person whom we know as Jesus Christ. And he is certified by the fact that the Father has put his stamp, seal of approval, on the man, John the Baptist, as well as upon the message which he delivers. He was a man who was not only certified by God, but he was ratified by the testimony of people who heard him and observed the life of Jesus. If we were to go to John 10, 41, what we would discover would be a group of people who come to Jesus and they say something like this to Jesus. Jesus, John, is a man who said a lot of things about you, all of which have come true. That would certainly validate the testimony of a person, in this case, John the Baptist. Everything which John said about Jesus came true. His assessment of Christ was 100% correct. So when we come to the Gospel of John, which in and of itself bears witness from beginning to end of the person of Jesus Christ, we see in this opening passage that John the Baptist is the expert, the expert witness in human form of Jesus. And we can learn. Now, here's the question for us. Would you say that you and I are to be expert witnesses of Jesus Christ as well? Well, I'm going to go ahead and say, yes, it's true of us. If we know Jesus and He lives in us, we have been called to be the kind of witness that John the Baptist was. We may have a different target audience, if you will. We've got a different set of people in a different time. We live in this day, but God has given us the opportunity as well as the responsibility to be expert witnesses. How do I say that? Well, let me refer you to something that's said in Scripture. The Bible says that God called us out of darkness into His marvelous light so that we might declare the excellencies of this One whom we know as Jesus Christ. We were brought to life spiritually. With that in mind, God wants you and me to be witnesses of Jesus and represent Him accurately. He has certified us as surely as He certified John the Baptist. You might say, well, we're not John the Baptist. You'd be right. This is what Jesus says about John the Baptist. It's a marvelous statement, He says. He says, John the Baptist 
was a man who had no peer. There was none like John the Baptist. Of all the men born of women, Jesus said about John the Baptist, he had no peer. He was greater than all the people who had been born of woman. But then, the next line that's recorded that Jesus said on the heels of His declaration about the greatness of John the Baptist, listen carefully. He said, But the least member of the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Wow. Are you a member of the kingdom of heaven? How would you know that you're a member of the kingdom of heaven? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And all the Beatitudes, if you followed them down, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are gentle, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right on down the line. If you're a person who is hungered after God and you have come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a member of the kingdom of heaven. And you are a person who is greater than John the Baptist. That's impossible for me to really wrap my mind around. I just accept it as truth. Not that I'm any better than anyone else, nor are you. But the point is, we are people who have been certified by Jesus Christ as members of the kingdom of heaven to be expert witnesses of Christ to the world. Now think about that. This dignifies the most lowly human being according to the world's standards of categorizing people. This is what makes our lives worthwhile, actually. That we can bring glory to God by letting our light shine in such a way that they will be drawn to Christ through our shining the light of Christ on them or Christ shining His life on them through us. Now, we know that in the book of Luke, the Bible says this about John the Baptist. When he was conceived in his mother's womb, the Bible says, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I've thought about that. How in the world can someone be filled with the Spirit in utero? Isn't it true that we receive Christ and by receiving Christ... He comes and dwells in us. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ, is what Paul writes in the book of Romans. How does this work? I don't know, but I know it's true. And when Mary came to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who was already six months pregnant with John the Baptist, when Mary conceived, Jesus was conceived in her womb. And the Scripture says, when Mary shows up, in a little out-of-the-way village in Judea, and she announces to Elizabeth what has happened to her. The baby leapt in her womb. He was jumping in the Spirit in the mother's womb. And he was full of the Spirit of God. This is so critically important to our understanding of our role as expert witnesses. You say, I have no expertise, Mike. The very idea that I could be an expert in sharing the Lord is outlandish. Well, let me tell you, it may be outlandish, but it's something that's achievable if you know Jesus and you are filled with His Spirit, that is controlled by His Spirit. Turn to 
chapter 15 of John for a moment. Let's look at verses 26 and 27 of John 15. Jesus says in John 15, 26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness of me. So, let's get the picture. What is the Holy Spirit's responsibility, among others? To bear witness to Jesus, correct? Now look at the next verse. And you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. Now he's talking obviously to the apostles. Jesus had been with them from the beginning of his public ministry. And they were to bear witness of him. The Spirit of God is with you and me. Now watch this as we turn to chapter 14. Turn back to chapter 14 a moment. And let's look at verses 16 and part of 17. John 14, 16 says, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. The word another means another just like me. So Jesus is saying, I will ask the Father, He will give you another Helper just like me, the Holy Spirit, that He may be with you forever. Guess what? When you receive Christ, the Spirit came to live in you. And He's with us, not just for time, but for eternity. He's with us forever. So when I go to witness to somebody, do you ever get sort of the shakes inside at least when you think about sharing Christ with people? There have been occasions when I've just been bold as a lion. Most of the time, I'm as timid as a lamb when it comes to sharing Christ. But I go against the grain of what my natural inclination is. I say, okay, Lord, here we go. And share Christ. Here's what you can always be sure of. You may be alone when you're sharing Christ. It's best to be with someone else when you're talking to others about Jesus. He never sent people out alone to share Him with others. He always sent someone with a person. That's the best scenario. But let's say you find yourself in a situation where you're alone. Are you really alone? Why? Because the Holy Spirit is indwelling you. And He has gone ahead of you, and He has borne witness of Christ before you're there. And while you're witnessing, it's the Holy Spirit who is communicating through you. It's not up to you and me. It's up to our yielding ourselves to the Spirit and trusting Christ enough to share Him. Expert witnessing has to do with the Spirit Himself working through you and me. And believe it or not, He wants to do that through every one of you who knows Jesus Christ. There's no question about it. So we are expert witnesses, not because of anything unusual in us, but because of the uniquely unusual person who indwells us, namely the Spirit of the Lord. Well, let's go back to where we began today, to chapter 1. And there are two things that I would like you to see in this passage of Scripture about being an expert witness. Two things. Remember, John the Baptist is our example of this. We're going to look at the content of his witness, if you're taking notes, the content of his witness. And then at a certain point, we're going to transition and look at the intent of his witness. Let's begin with the content of his witness in verse 7. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light. 
Now, take note in verse 8. This is, it says, he was not the light. And then look at verse 15. John bore witness of him, speaking of Jesus, and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. He was not the light. He knew he was not the light. He knew that the light existed before him. He knew that Jesus was greater than he. He had no delusions of grandeur. And what we must understand, if we're going to have the proper content in our witness, we're going to have to forget about ourselves and focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. John Chrysostom a great preacher of the gospel in the 4th century, made this statement. He said, The excellence of a messenger consists in his saying nothing about himself. And then Martin Luther, fast forward 11 centuries. And this is what Martin Luther said about this passage of Scripture. He said, Good, pious Christian teachers direct the people away from themselves and to Christ as John the Baptist did with his testimony. And then Matthew Henry, some of you are familiar with his commentary. This is what he says about John the Baptist. He said, John the Baptist is a star, like that which guided the wise men to Christ, a morning star. But he is not the son. And he is not the bridegroom. He is the friend of the bridegroom. He is not the prince, but he is the prince's Harbinger, that is the forerunner. That's John the Baptist. It was not about John the Baptist. When we witness, we need to forget about ourselves. When we share Christ with people, don't, if you're afraid, just say to yourself, do not fear, I am with you. That's what Jesus would say to you, right? He has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Do not be afraid, is what the Word of God says about those situations. Forget about yourself. And then you step out in faith and you share the light, Jesus, with people. And that idea, by the way, of light presupposes that there's something in all human beings which craves for the light. People are eager to understand why they are here. Have you asked that question of yourself recently? Why am I here? May I tell you, you're here to let the light shine in your life and then in turn reflect that light out into the world. We're here for the purpose of knowing God, knowing Jesus as the light, knowing Him as the life, trusting Him and living for Him and being His certified expert witnesses. We're to be witnesses first. That's worth noting. When Jesus was saying goodbye... To his men, his apostles, he said, you shall be my witnesses. We see John the Baptist being described here as one who bore witness to Christ. And we tend to jump over the be part to get to the bearing part. That's why we fail in our witnessing so often. We need to be witnesses. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witness. Now, I want to be sure you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I like what the great Samuel Shoemaker said. He was an Episcopal priest in the middle part of the 20th century, a man of God par excellence. This is what he said. He said, I cannot, by being good, 
speak of the atoning work of my Lord Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead. Look, we are to share the gospel, but we need to be before we do. Our doing that is effective comes out of who we are in Christ. It's the life of Christ. It's the fruit of the Spirit that comes out of us that leads to people who become fruit, who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to give witness to the light. That's phenomenal. I was raised on the banks of the Mississippi River, far upstream from this illustration I'm going to share. This illustration comes down toward the mouth of the Mississippi in Louisiana. Louisiana, if you're from Louisiana. Not Louisiana. It's Louisiana. And it's about a category of worker known as light keepers. In the late 19th into the early 20th centuries, there was this cadre of people whose responsibility was to keep the navigation lamps lit, filled with coal oil, through rain, sleet, whatever kind of weather came, fog, so they would brave the fog, floods, hurricanes. Can you imagine being out in hurricane force winds? But they did it. Even moonshiners would try to assail them and make them take the lights out. And Why? Because the moonshiners didn't want to get caught by the revenueers. That's why, right? But what we know is those people risked their lives to make sure that the light was on so that those ships which were going down and up the Mississippi in the treacherous waters around the mouth of the Mississippi would not run aground. That's why. They would pass this responsibility, in many cases, on to their sons who would follow in the footsteps of their fathers as light keepers. Do you know we're light keepers? Do you ever see yourself as a light keeper? You are if you know Christ. You may not know it. You may have forgotten it. You may not have let your light shine as you ought to have. In 1972, I read, I didn't read it, I need to correct myself, I heard on a radio news item about a man who had gone back to his home of his childhood to visit his parents. And for the first time in decades, he decided to take a visit to the attic. It was his favorite hangout in this home. And he went up in the attic, and as he began to look around the attic, he, would, he was wiping cobwebs away, and he came to a place that he spent a lot of time in, one little cranny of the attic. It had a little desk there, a chair, and then there was a light bulb above, not a lamp, but a light bulb had been screwed into the socket there. And he remembered how, as a boy growing up into high school and junior high, he would sit down at that desk and he would do his studies under the illumination of that light. And he said, I wonder if I pull the chain, if the light will come on. No, it had been like 20 years or more since he'd been up there. He pulled the chain and lo and behold, the light came on. He became curious about the date of the manufacture of that light bulb. He unscrewed the bulb and he was able to read that that light bulb had been made in 1904. 1904-1972, if I can do subtraction right, that's 68 years. It had fallen into disuse. Why? Because 
the light bulb had not been turned on. The light bulb had the capacity to shine. It needed connection, of course, and it needed a pull of a chain. And he said, I had forgotten that it was there. The light was there in principle all along, but he had forgotten it. Now, here's an application for our lives as followers of Jesus. It's easy for us to not have the kind of walk with the Lord that we don't let Him shine through our lives. But what a wonderful opportunity we have. John the Baptist, the expert witness, he shone, didn't he? If we were to go to John chapter 5, verse 33, this is what we read. Jesus says this about John the Baptist. He was a light who was burning, I like that word, was burning and shining. And you rejoiced for a while in His light. A lamp burning. The lamp is not the light. The lamp emits light because the lamp is the reservoir of oil that when lit, it burns and it shines. And people rejoice, as they did in the shining of John the Baptist, in the light. Do you know, there will be nothing quite like it for our lives Individually or collectively as a church. When we come into this place, and those of us who know Jesus, we are walking in the Spirit. We're seeking the Lord. We're spending time alone with the Lord. We are in league with the light. Then the light's going to shine right in here. The glory of God is going to be in here. And people will know there's something different in this room without a word ever being sung or said because of the presence of Christ in your life and my life and our commitment to let His light shine through our lives. Is that anywhere remotely like your life? Well, if it isn't, it can be. If you know Jesus, it should be. And it's a wonderful opportunity which is given to us to be expert witnesses of Jesus. The content. What is the content? To be of our expert witness? Not us. Let me go ahead and make another comment about that before we go forward. Do you know what happens sometimes after you get over yourself and the fear of failure and the fear of being rejected and you go ahead and you share Christ and all of a sudden the Lord uses you to help someone come to faith in Christ? Maybe not the first time you share, but as you cultivate a relationship, that happens. Then you get some success. Who gives the success? It's the Holy Spirit, right? And... So you think, wow, this is pretty exciting. And so you let that light shine out of your lamp and it burns and you share. And here's what can happen. After a while, you can get proud about that. You can be scared to begin with, but you can get proud. You know, neither of those is acceptable. Why? Because we're to focus on the light, on the person of Christ. Now let's go on quickly with regard to the intent of the witness. The content we know is the light, not us. The intent is really found in specific in verse 12. But let's read everything leading up to that. Verse 9 says, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. In what way does Jesus enlighten every person? Well, here's the way it works. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. 
who made, who created this world. He's speaking of geography when he uses the word cosmos is the word in both cases. He's talking about the physical world, the universe. That's what he's talking about. Who made it? We saw last week in verse 3, all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. Isn't it true? Some of you could give testimony of this and we could go all over the world where the gospel has never come. And inherently people will know there's a God. It's what Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes. God has put eternity in the hearts of men. It's there in the sense we innately know there is a God. And one of the reasons we know, we see it in creation. I can tell you every time I crest the hill coming this direction on west when I top that hill, I am finding myself with my breath being taken away almost every time. Every time I see that mountain right in front of me, it speaks so loudly of the Creator God. It is awesome to live in this world, to see the sunsets here in El Paso and the different features of our desert area. Anywhere you and I go in the world, we see things that are magnificent representations of a power that is great, the Creator. And Jesus was the agent of the creation. He enlightens every man. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim The work of His hands. Day after day, they would be the heavens and the skies pour forth speech without ever uttering a word. But they are reflections of God. And Jesus is the one who is the Creator. And it was He who was the agent of the creation of the world. So that's how He enlightens every man. He puts that in the hearts of men all over the world. And 10, let's go and read it again in its entirety to get the sense of the last part. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and now he makes a shift in his usage of world. And the world did not know him. Now, the way in which John uses, especially in really the entire New Testament, uses the word world most often, overwhelmingly this is true, is mankind organized in rebellion against God. Can you listen to that one more time? The world, as it's used here in chapter 1, verse 10, the last usage, it's mankind organized in rebellion against God. Who is the organizer? Well, John tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, the whole world, it's talking about the world system, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Who might the evil one be? Satan. So the world did not receive Him. Does that surprise you that the world did not receive Jesus? Well, absolutely not. Satan hates Jesus, doesn't he? He hates Him. He's tried from the beginning to kill Him and to displace Him in the hearts of people in whom Christ lives. The world did not know Him. Now look at verse 11. He came to His own and those who were His own did not receive Him. What's the opposite of receiving, by the way? What? Rejecting, yes. Keep your place here and go to the 19th chapter of John. Verse 27. John's wording is identical in both of these sections. It's conceivable, if not probable, that he wrote what we know as John 1 19, all the way to the end, and then came back and wrote the prologue. 
So maybe these words came first in his writing, and he was reminded by the Spirit when he came to write the prologue, this part we're looking at today and did last week. He remembered this event out of the life of Jesus. Look at verse 27 of chapter 19. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible, what you note probably is household is in italics. Whenever there's a word that's in italics in your Bible, what that says to us is it's really not there in the original text. It's just put there by the translators in hopes that it will make better sense to us. Here's what it literally says. From that hour, the disciple took her, Mary, that is, the mother of Jesus, into his own. And it's logical, into his own household. Now, let's go back with that in mind and look at verse 11 again. He came to his own household, and those who were his own did not receive him. Jesus came to Nazareth. Was he well received in his hometown? No. He took up the scroll on the Sabbath when he had begun his ministry. He reads from the scroll. He says, this prediction of the Messiah is about me. And you talk about stirring up a hornet's nest. They took him out to the brow of the hill upon which Nazareth sat and still sits, and they were ready to throw him off. There are two ways of stoning people in that day for blasphemy. He, in their minds, he had blasphemed. And that one way is what we would think, people taking up rocks and throwing it at a person. Another was to take a person to a high precipice where rocks below and just throw that person off to his death. They were ready to stone Jesus. That's what kind of greeting he got there. And he said, a prophet is not without honor except one place. Where's that? In his own hometown. In his own home. Was he well received in his own home? What about his brothers and sisters? Did they think he was the best thing since sliced bread? I don't think so. What did they say to Jesus one day when Jesus was teaching? They come up and they send someone inside where he's teaching and they say, in effect, tell him to come out here. He's really making a fool of himself. And what they were really saying was, he's embarrassing us. So he didn't find himself well received in his hometown, nor did he find himself well received in his own family, among his brothers and sisters. He was rejected by him. They did not receive him. Now here we come in verses 12 and 13 to the whole purpose of, for the writing of the Gospel of John. And listen so carefully, I I beg you to do that. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. I want to pick this apart a bit. But as many as received Him. The word received is a word which means to welcome. And not just sort of welcome, to welcome gladly, to embrace It would be like someone coming to your home and you're so excited and exhilarated to see that person. You just almost jump for joy and you embrace that person and say, Oh, I'm so glad you're here. Come in. Mikasa, sukasa. That's what you say. You ask that person, come in and be with me. This is your house. But as many as received Him... To them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Now, we have some people in this room who are from the show-me state. If you're from the show-me state, would you raise your hand? Anybody here? We've had people in the other services. I'm looking. 
It's the only service that we have in anybody present who's from Missouri, and, or at least is not ashamed to admit it if you're from Missouri. <laughs> Grant, did you raise your hand? Okay, thank you, Grant. I knew there was one in the house. It's from St. Louis, my favorite town outside of El Paso. Okay, do you know seeing is believing? That's what people from Missouri believe. It's a show me state, see me is believing. You know what real faith is? Now, please don't miss this. Real faith is this. Receiving is believing. You follow? But as many as received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave them the right to become children of God. You will never become a child of God. You may say, what? I'm a child of God. I'm a human being. I beg your pardon. The Word of God is very clear here. You become a child of God when you receive Jesus Christ and not just in some ritual. You gladly welcome Him into your being. You say, here I am, Lord. Come in, Lord. And don't just be my guest. You be the host here. You be the dominant one in my life. You be the Lord of my life. You be the one who calls the shots in my life. Lord, would you please do that, Lord? When that moment occurs, you become a child of God. You receive the right. We talk a lot about rights in our culture. Well, the word right is a compound word in the original language. It means out of being. Ek usia or ex usia. Usia means being. Ek is a preposition or ex when it's affixed to a word which begins in a vowel. Ex usia. It means out of being. What does that mean? Where is our authority? Our authority is in us. Because the one who is the authority, the Word, is in us. And that authority is conveyed to us. We are keepers not only of the light, but we are also keepers of the authority. And we let the light shine through us. And we share in His authority. As we saw last week, when we talked about of His fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. We become children of God. Even to those who believe in His name. Two more observations before I leave verse 12 to look at verse 13. Here's what it literally says. Even to those who believe into His name. That doesn't sound right, does it, to us? Into His name. Did any of you ever see the movie... He's not that much into you. Did you ever see that movie? What is that saying? He's not much into you. He's not committed to you. If you know the storyline, he's not committed to you. Are you into Jesus? Are you committed to the person of Jesus Christ? The way you know you're committed is, have you received him into your life? And in so doing, you know what's implicit in receiving someone into your house, I don't have to tell you. If you received me into your house, if I came to your house today, you would be saying one thing for sure about me. I trust you. Wouldn't you? This is what this kind of faith is. It's trust. Absolute trust. Commitment to the person of Jesus saying, Lord, come in. This is yours. I'm yours. This is your place. You're not going to be rejected here. You're going to be received here. And... It's to those who believe into His name. 
What a wonderful song that Samantha sang. What a wonderful name. What a beautiful name. There is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. If you have a chance in this life and the life to come, it's through the name of Jesus. The word name means the person of. In Acts 1.15, 120 people were in the upper room waiting for the Spirit to come. And when Luke writes about that, he says there were 120 people there. You know what the word literally is? 120 names. Your name counts to the Lord. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says in John 10. And I know them. And he could have put parenthetically, I know them by name. You are someone of significance if you know the Lord. Jesus Christ has called you to be an expert witness of Him. He's called you to let your light shine. In verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now listen carefully. Don't mishear what I'm about to say. All of us who have received Christ have had sort of a virgin birth spiritually. It was not of blood in this day and time. It was thought by the rabbis of Jesus' day that by the blood of the Father, represented by the semen and the the sperm, and the blood of the mother, represented by the egg, the convergence, the confluence of those two, a person was born. Biological birth. What's he saying? You're not one of the children of God based upon biological birth, not based upon your descent. You can't count on your mom's faith, your dad's faith, your great-grandfather, anybody for your salvation. When I was talking to my aunt after my grandmother on my father's side had died, she was the elder matriarch in the family, and she was saying, as I was asking her, tell me, about our family. I want to know everything I can. And I was wanting to gather information before she died. And she said, as far back as we can tell, Mike, everyone in our family has been a follower of Christ. Now, that's an exaggeration, I'm sure. But there was at least a form of godliness. Everyone, as far back as we could tell, probably three or four generations back, followers of Christ. Do you know, I'm not a Christian because my great-great-grandfather Bill Woods was a Christian. He was a Christian. He and his brothers were prisoners in Andersonville. Their mother, who would be my great-great-great-grandmother, left Mississippi to take them northward to West Tennessee to a county which was very unusual in that it was a Republican county. And... She wanted her sons to fight in the Union Army, not in the Confederate Army. And they found themselves in Andersonville Prison. And so the story was told to be by my aunt. She said, Our great, great, your great-great-grandfather, my great-grandfather Bill, he and his brother, prisoners there, were dying of thirst in the squalor of that awful prison. And... They began to pray with some others there, and miraculously, a spring broke forth from the ground. I can't confirm that. He had great faith. My great-great-grandfather had great faith. But I'm not getting into heaven based upon his faith, nor are you getting into heaven based upon your parents' faith, nor are your children getting into heaven based upon your faith. Every person comes in by being born of God 
believing in God. Nor are we born by the will of the flesh. This means not by a psychological conversion. You know, the will is part of your psyche. It's part of your soul. And therefore, many people have a soulish conversion, not a true spiritual conversion. It's not that kind of conversion, not a psychological conversion, nor is it a religious conversion, the will of man. There are many people who are converted religiously, maybe some in this room, where you've gone through the paces, you've been baptized, you tithe, you take the Lord's Supper, you do all these things, but there has not been this regenerative act of being born of God. You can't do you don't have anything to do with it. Except to believe. Now before we finish this morning, the word believe is used approximately 100 times in the book of John. Do you know how many times it's used in the other Gospels? John has nine times more usages of the word believe than all the other Gospels put together. Nine times more. It's the gospel of belief, as I mentioned at the beginning. I think it was this service. The gospel of belief. And we believe. Now, in this statement in verses 12 and 13, let's go over it one more time. I I hope you grasp it fully. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. It's Christ alone. You were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's Christ's work, Christ alone. It is also faith alone. You received Him and you believed in Him, right? And the word believe is never modified by an adverb or an adjective in the Gospel of John. Never once. And that is certainly on purpose of the Holy Spirit and John under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Here's why. John did not want any of his readers to think that we could do anything to add to what Jesus has done for us. It's belief. End of discussion. It's receiving the gift of Christ into our lives and all that that means to us. And then it's also by grace alone. We were dead. We were blind. The Bible says in Ephesians 5.8, But you were darkness. Not that you were in the darkness. You were darkness before you came to Christ. But now you are light in the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? Are you light in the Lord? Well, if you know Jesus, if you really know Him, you're light. And our great privilege is to join a long line of expert witnesses And Christ is calling us today to let our light shine. To be a lamp like John the Baptist, which burns. That reminds me of what Jeremiah said when he tried to keep quiet about the Word of God. It was like a fire in his bones. Anything like that go on in your heart? When you try to keep quiet about the Lord, some of you have let the fire burn down. Remember what... Paul wrote to Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God that was, is in you through the laying on of hands. Get those bellows working. Fan it into flame. There's nothing quite like being a person who has been given the privilege of witnessing to the light.
Let's pray. Father, we ask Your forgiveness for forgetting about Jesus as our light. We want to turn the light back on, Lord. We pray that You would ignite it in our hearts. That we would be committed more than ever to be expert witnesses for Christ. Just to share the Lord. To spread the seed indiscriminately in El Paso. We would just sow this city down for the glory of God. And we know what will happen, Lord. People will come to You. Help us to be good stewards of those who do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.